0: Hello, welcome to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture with me, Davis. Today we will be interviewing Tyler Howard. He has been an adjunct professor at the University of San Diego for 15 years. Thank you for joining us on Office Hours today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Let's dive right in. What did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Uh, when, I, when I was younger, what I wanted to be was a priest. Really? Yeah.
0: And you're obviously not a priest right now. No, I'm
1: not
0: a priest. <laughs> what what uh, changed that?
1: I stopped believing in the way that I would have believed before when I was in college. And so it didn't seem like a uh, direction that I could go in anymore. Um, So that's largely what changed. But by the time that it happened, I, uh, I majored as an undergraduate in philosophy because that was the traditional preparation for seminary. And then by the time that didn't seem like it was where I was going to go anymore, I cared about philosophy. And so when I was getting close to graduating, I thought that was the direction I would go in. Um, Cause I'd been, I mean, part of wanting, part of having intended to be in Greece, uh, meant that my family didn't really expect me to do anything that was, you know, financially, that would have brought me a lot of money, um, there wasn't that kind of expectation, so I could kind of do whatever I wanted to.
0: Well, hmm. what changed that for you? What changed the way that you believe in things?
1: I guess I was certain about things when I was younger that I, I ceased to be certain about by the time I was in my early 20s. And probably now I'm even less certain about them. I don't think it would be right. I, don't, I didn't think at the time it would be right to take a role where you're presenting things as absolutely true that you're not sure in what sense they're absolutely true
0: what then you were in philosophy Yep. and so you just continued you decided to take that path
1: yeah so i I really i mean i had started taking philosophy classes when i was in my senior year of high school um a a english teacher of mine her husband was a dean at the there's a, a small religious school not catholic religious school in my hometown. She and her husband had paid for me to take classes at that that college when I was was in high school. And it was a thing that I, I liked and I was fairly good at. And then I thought, well, this is something that I could do. I probably had an overly romantic idea of what it would be. So my senior year in college, I applied to grad school. I applied to only four places. The four places that I applied were pretty much all top ranked. I got into zero of them. So the next year, the year after college, I, I still had, I had connections, uh, various religious connections, because I had been thinking about priesthood, um, and I ended up spending a year doing volunteer work with a soup kitchen and clinic for the homeless in Milwaukee. Uh, and then during that time, I also um, applied to grad school again. I applied to more places, and that time I got in.
0: What made you want to go to grad school?
1: A lot of the things that people would tend to do with philosophy didn't much interest me. So, the law didn't at the time really interest me. There was nothing else I really cared that deeply about. So there was a thing that I liked a lot, and I thought, I might as well do this.
0: Makes sense. Yeah, I mean,
1: it it seemed to make sense at the time.
0: (laughs) Do you feel, are you happy that you did that?
1: I'm not much of a philosopher, I'm not much of a scholar. But I like teaching. I like teaching a lot more than I ever thought I would. And so, I'm, I'm pretty much happy in the, the ways that I've lucked into things.
0: Mm. Do you feel like you had a path and it was totally dismantled?
1: I think probably my path has been dismantled a few times.
0: Really? What were those dismantlings?
1: Well, I, I mean, so there's one in, in sort of not entering priesthood that's, that's one kind of dismantling. I ended up falling in love in grad school. I ended up in San Diego because I followed my partner who teaches at state, not a philosophy. I don't know, in, in a lot of ways I think, I think we have, or at least I did, you have ideas of what your life's going to look like when you're 19 or 20 or 22 or 25 and it often ends up looking a lot different. And sometimes it's it's surprising in good ways. Sometimes I'd like to tell the 25-year-old, it's not going to look like what, it, what you think it is, but it's going to be okay.
0: That's good advice. What are your passions right now?
1: I, I've always had a hard time identifying things that, I, that, that count as passions. I think it's prob- probably partly the way just I, I think about the world. There are lots of things I like to read about a lot. There are some things that, that I, I've cared about failed projects from graduate school that I still worry about, questions in philosophy of mind, for instance. I don't know. I flip from one thing that I care deeply about to another. And I don't know whether I identify any of them as as exactly passions. I care a lot about questions in ethics. I've been caring a lot recently or thinking a lot recently about questions about identity um, in all kinds of ways. Debates about... Identities and gender, but also debates about or discussions about ethnic and political identities and other kinds of questions.
0: How is that tied into your philosophical teaching? I know.
1: Uh, well, the ethical part is is tied into philosophical, I mean, I, I teach ethics, so that's that's partly tied into that. The other stuff is tied into concerns. So so my my major project in graduate school, which ended up not really going anywhere, was about theories of concepts and categories in in philosophy of mind. There's a view that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages that kind of has, has an idea that a lot of the concepts and categories that we have are ones that we impose on the world rather than actually being in the world. So that we see so we one way to think about this is that we see hard lines between categories, that everything is either A or not A. Um, and maybe those categories aren't in the world but in us. And I think there are connections between that and some of the ways that we think about identity. In, in some of the ways that we construct identities, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, where the identities end up being really important because they matter politically but they might not really be there in the world.
0: Like socially constructed. Socially
1: constructed. But just because something, I mean, people say this, but just because something socially constructed doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Because it can have deep, important effects. More maybe being uncertain about a bunch of things. Hmm. Um, including uncertain about what I can or cannot know.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, maybe, maybe it does, <laughs> I'm not sure. What What made you start teaching?
1: Well, you you have to make a living. So when I moved out here following um, Fernando, uh, I first didn't have any kind of job. So I attended bar and applied or sent out sort of dealers various places. Someone who was supposed to teach classes here at USD moved or canceled or something at the last minute and there were classes available. And so I Started teaching, and I've been here since then.
0: What well, kept you? I like
1: being here. I like—I mean, I, I generally like the students. I generally—I generally like students. I'm actually terrified of, of students, but I'm also—I <laughs> don't. Crowds frighten me, and being in front of even a group of twenty people um, makes me anxious. But it's also kind of exhilarating. When I was a lot younger, I used to do. Really bad community theater, and there's a way in which teaching is like that. You get the sort of stage fright, but also, if things go well, it's it's really great. And the other thing is that I don't I don't have children, and I'm not going to have children. And it's not in any way it's not very similar. Uh, but having some kind of effect on people, or just getting to talk to people and and think through them and with them is a is a Really kind of rewarding thing. One of my, one of my favorite professors when I was an undergrad, so a long, long time ago, used to say, people thought it was kind of a joke, extremely prominent philosopher, but he used to say that he, his favorite classes to teach were introductory classes. And this is someplace where there was a graduate program. But the reason was that only there do you really get to, to talk to people who have new and fresh ideas, who haven't been trained in ways that sort of drive out novel thought. So his kind of idea was that if you've done too much, too much of anything, but if you've done too much philosophy, for instance, or just not necessarily too much, but you've done just the amount that gets you into grad school, then you're mimicking other people's thoughts. Whereas if you're in an intro class, you probably are just thinking for yourself. You're not trying to impress anybody. And I and, and the reason that he liked teaching intro classes was that, that like, like I said, that's where you learned things. You get different perspectives.
0: Do you find that too?
1: Oh yeah. I find a couple of things. I, I grew up in a certain way, in a certain era, and I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white gay man. So I have certain perspectives that come from some of those things. One of the ways that I most contact people who aren't like me is in the classroom. Who experience the world in often very different ways and, and challenge things that i thought for a long time. Sometimes they reinforce things, I think. And also sometimes, and I mean this in a good way, they put me to shame. Like make me think about both why I think something, but also why I live in a certain way. Whether whether things that, that you know I take for granted are ethical, for instance. And I think that really, um, this is not some of an academic issue, but um, I tend to think of philosophy in its, its original sense as something about wisdom for living, and I think I learn a lot about living from people whose lives are different than mine and mm-hmm. who haven't looked at the same question for twenty some years
0: and have similar answers and have or sometimes answers.
1: really not very similar answers at all. Hmm. I think sometimes the most the most I've learned is from people who think, "Oh no, that's just wrong."
0: That's so interesting. What do you think for you philosophy means to you?
1: At its beginning, at least in, in, I was going to say at least in the Western tradition, but it's not just in the Western tradition, in most traditions, philosophy wasn't really an academic discipline. It means literally the love of wisdom. But the idea was supposed to be that you learn something about how to live. But for me, it means something about figuring out how to live in a way that is better reasoned. That's what it means to me more than anything though. Not, not necessarily the, the, um, the most abstract theories, though some of them are really interesting, but more how it is a, a tool for, for living or a science for living and living better. But I do really, I mean, it, it sounds cliched, but I do, every semester I learn from, from students and I do it in every one of my classes.
0: What are some misconceptions you had coming into being a, a professor?
1: I don't think I ever thought about how much grading there was. <laughs> and how deeply unpleasant that is. Mm. Like I had a kind of romantic idea of what teaching at college would be like. But when I was younger, I was very much kind of an Anglophile. And I, I read a lot of mid-century, mid-20th century <coughs> English novels. Um, a lot of them set up places like Oxford and Cambridge, which give you this kind of very rarefied and romantic image of what, what universities are like. And there's just a lot more great I'm just gonna say that. How about um,
0: being a philosopher?
1: I don't know, I think when I was younger I probably thought that I would regain certainty in some ways. And I'm just less certain about almost everything than I ever was before. Which is one thing that I actually, this is a, a philosophical struggle, I guess how to connect uncertainty with action in the world. So how to connect not being sure what's true in certain cases with having some kind of moral or political judgments, small p- political judgments, not, not partisan ones. How do you ground commitments when you think that most things are things we can't be certain about? How have
0: you found that you're able to do that?
1: No, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I do have ethical and political commitments. I don't always know how to ground those. And one thing I've been thinking about recently is a kind of danger in having conclusions and we look for premises to support them, rather than going from what we have evidence of to some kind of conclusion. I think a lot of ethical and political thought works that way. I want this to be okay, how can I justify it being okay? Rather than, here's what I know, what does it lead me to think that I ought to do, ought to support. When you're when you're an undergrad or when you're in grad school in philosophy, what do you think is that you'll be the next famous whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, Aristotle. Aristotle, I mean, yeah, or more contemporary ones who are famous only to philosophers. I mean, being the most famous philosopher is sort of like being being the fastest turtle. No one's going to know who you are. But you know, some people are really good at um, those kinds of things. Um, I'm an okay teacher, so that's a kind of maybe that's a kind of struggle figuring out what you're good at and learning to accept what you're good at as being kind of okay.
0: Hmm. Are there ways that you are pushing yourself, or are you feeling comfortable and, and good and, and uh, strong in this position?
1: Uh, no, I, I mean I'm very comfortable in the position that I'm in. Um, I like to tell myself occasionally that Kant, who's an important modern modern philosopher, but modern philosophy ends for philosophers in about 1800. Um, everything else after that is, is something else. Um, Kant never did any really, um, well, he didn't do his famous work until he was 50. So I keep telling myself I've got four more years. Nice. Yeah. And then you have
0: to write a, write a beautiful, (laughs) long...
1: Yeah. Three, (laughs) three huge books. Um, in, in... I'm gonna be waiting. Unbelievable, unbelievably bad prose to change all philosophy. Or probably not. What's
0: the last big project you worked on?
1: Uh, the last big project I worked on was, um together an anthology with one of my colleagues uh, a couple of years ago which took us about about a year longer than it was supposed to which is fairly typical academic everything is always longer than it's supposed to be deadlines are usually suggestions and then your publisher gets mad at you but that was the last big thing that we did I did it together with Brian Clack it's also in this department collaborating with somebody is always hard you have to agree in judgments about what things matter, what things don't matter.
0: What was it? Like, what did you do?
1: It's a, it's the anthology for our class thing, which came out a year ago, a year and a half ago.
0: How was that when it came out for you?
1: It was good. Um, less exciting than you might think. Partly I'm not that excitable, but less exciting than, than you might have thought it was. I was looking to see if there's a copy, but there isn't one here. There's another, so that's another kind of misconception that you think, or at least when you're 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 starting out, you think that if you get something published, a book published rather, um, that there's money in it. There's no money in it. It's kind of like college loans. Literally, we still owe the publisher money for permissions because they have to get permissions for samples that are in it, selections that are in it, uh-huh. uh, and we owe them still and probably will always owe them. It is like college loans. I still make a college loan payment. Um, that's another misconception. I thought it would be paid off at some point. <laughs> uh, it gets paid off when I'm 47, I think, my college loans. Whoa. It's a small payment, but I make a payment every month. Like, I'm still It's paying, a reminder. <laughs> I'm still paying for something I, I ended 24 years ago.
0: That's crazy. Yep. Yeah. What made I means you want to go to college in the first place?
1: was just the thing that you did I think my mom didn't graduate from college my father's a school teacher and it wasn't I mean it's not that everyone in my my family did go to college uh, but it just seemed like the only route probably Um, most of my family do some kind of um, work in the trades usually mostly um, plumbers and, and work like that and that just didn't seem like anything I wanted to do good and important work, but not the kind of thing that I have skills at.
0: What made you want to be a priest in the first place?
1: Oh, God knows. (laughs) Uh, Literally. Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah, if God exists, then God knows. That I don't really know. That's so far in the past that it's hard to know what that was. I don't know. I mean, I I loved, um, at least at the time, I I loved the beauty of, of worship, I guess. It seemed like a role that might fit me and I thought I was very certain about the existence of God and the nature of God but I think that's what it is I don't know I mean I, I don't know I, I'm not certain that we always choose to want things but they sort of happen for us in various ways
0: how is the teaching at a Catholic University
1: I went to a college that was much more Catholic than USD. I went to Notre Dame, undergraduate. And there were, I think in my dorm, there were three resident priests and a chapel mm-hmm. in every dorm uh, with mass twice a day in every dorm. So it was really Catholic wow. uh, with basilica on campus. Um, women's dorms had nuns in them, um, and, and also a resident priest because there had to be someone to say mass. Oh. In the chapel. Um, so, USD is Catholic, but it's, it's much less Catholic. At least in, in those kinds of um, material and obvious ways. I'm dedicated in various ways to the Catholic intellectual tradition. So, that for me is a good thing, I think.
0: How is it for you going to Notre Dame and also being gay?
1: I don't know if I knew. Uh, I didn't come out until after I was out of college. Although I do remember one day in front of my dorm, senior year, some other student, I remember her telling me that she had heard a vicious rumor that I was bisexual.
0: A vicious rumor? Yes.
1: And all I remember saying to her is, what would make you think that was a vicious rumor? And going into my dorm, I didn't date anyone until until after I was out of college. So it didn't matter that much. It was a time, graduated in 95, So it was a time when there was a lot of um, ferment on on campus about that, though. There was a nascent student group, which I wasn't a member of, that the university didn't sanction. So they would constantly try to advertise in the student newspaper, and the administration would keep banning them from advertising. They couldn't advertise, they couldn't put a notice for where the meetings are under their own name. So then they changed their acronym all into Greek letters, but the university found that. And it was a, a whole fight about whether they could organize or not, whether it was consistent with the Catholic nature of the university. But for me, it, was, it wasn't as big a deal because I was just sort of asexual and getting through college.
0: Did that impact you and your Catholicism at all? Luke?
1: It probably did to some degree. So I'm sort of like I said, I'm kind of a weird Catholic. Uh, I, I go to mass sometimes, but I don't go. I don't go to communion. I'm not a big joiner or belonger, so I always feel a little out of place there and everywhere else. I just so I, I sit in the back and critique the mass. And go. <laughs> Pina Gelli? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> like you, 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 you messed up the reading again. Um, <laughs> then I got
0: home. Are there things that you wish you got more into?
1: I didn't ever finish my PhD.
0: Really, why not?
1: A number of different things. One, I moved, so my partner got a job out here, and then I, I moved to follow him. I guess have never drive to finish. And I wish I would have. Though, part of what happened was I lost a lot of interest in the project that I was working on. Which is a thing that happens sometimes that you think that there's there's an important question that needs to be answered, and then you decide that's not really an interesting question at all, and it's hard then to finish thinking about the question that you don't think matters very much. So that I, I wish I would have done. It sits in my it sits in my garage, an almost complete graft, mm. but almost complete.
0: That's the that's the most important.
1: No, it's not at all. The almost, yes. The almost almost is, yes. (laughs) He's almost alive. Um, So that, I guess, I would have done. Um,
0: What does your typical day look like?
1: If it's here, Mm -hmm. so I teach three days a week, and my typical day here is that I get here by about eight. I have an hour to look over my lecture notes, take care of emails that need to be answered, I teach four four classes every semester. Um, So I teach three in a row, have an office hour, and teach a fourth one. Then usually I go home, I do grading, the bane of my existence. (laughs) That's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm home working on lectures and grading. The rest of my time is spent reading various things. So I'm reading a not-that-recent book about questions of identity, by Kwame Apaya, um, called the lies, the lies defined. That That's the other thing I do, and then walk the dogs.
0: You have two dogs, eh? Yes. What are their names?
1: Uh, Dio and Kobe. That's cute. Or Diogenes and Coburg.
0: You're a philosopher.
1: Uh, Diogenes <laughs> is named after a philosopher. Um, Coburg is just because we're stupid. <laughs> yes, I do. We have two dogs.
0: Did you ever, you never thought you would end up here as a philosopher or as a any teaching any philosophy in the University of those San Diego? Uh,
1: no, I never thought. I'm from the Midwest. Um, and I think probably when I was growing up, I thought I would live all of my life in the Midwest. I'm from a medium-sized town in Indiana. Uh, I didn't think I would stay there, but I thought I would be somewhere, you know, m- maybe as far away as Chicago, but not any further than that. I would have never thought, I had every conception of, of California that Midwesterners have.
0: What are the conceptions?
1: Uh, it's all kind of vapid. Hmm. Um, it's just a stupid, overly liberal state where everything's sort of crazy.
0: Have you found that to be true?
1: No. But also I've changed a lot since I was 22. Hmm. I like. I, I really. I, I like San Diego. One thing that that took us a while after we moved here to, to start getting into was um, one. I guess one kind of problem with San Diego is that it's really nice, so it can be hard to do things that have that are cultural, like you just want to go to the beach yeah. or hang out in the backyard and enjoy the weather, and not do things like you know explore the music scene. Or theater or those kinds of things Um, but no I never thought I would be here at this university or I I did think by the time I was in my late or my mid-twenties that I would be teaching but I didn't think in California.
0: What, What are some things that you would tell students that are graduating right now?
1: So one thing, um, and this is all advice that will sound absolutely horrible, <laughs> um, and exactly the wrong kinds of things, and the things that your parents would not say, um, but but one thing I would say is, if you have opportunities um, to do outlandish things, or um, interesting things, you should take those while you're young. I a student. A bunch of years ago now, seven or eight, who was, she was getting ready to graduate, and she had two different opportunities. One was to go to law school, and the other was to play professional sand volleyball, or beach volleyball, I guess it's called. I remember her asking me what I thought she should do, and I don't generally give advice, but the thing I told her was, well, you know, you can go to law school probably whenever, but... Beach volleyball, if it's something you like, you can do it now, but if you go to law school, you won't be able to do beach volleyball probably after. So take the opportunity if you have it and do it now. If you have the opportunity to travel, do it now. Because when you're older and you've got a settled job, or you've got a mortgage, or you've got a couple kids, or you have a couple dogs, you can't do that. You can't just pick up and go places. And when you're older, you'll have the experiences to look back on. The other thing that I I tell people is that if there's a choice between a thing and an experience, you should choose the experience. If you've got a little extra money and it's an opportunity to buy, I mean, unless you're buying something that will gain value over time and you're worried about retirement, assuming the world still exists. You can, you can take some kind of trip or you can have some kind of really great meal or you can go to some great event or you can buy a thing, go to the event. The thing you'll forget about, the event you won't. This is, again, not good advice, but in, in grad school, we, we didn't make very much money. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was enough to live on, but barely enough to live on. And we regularly overspent what we had. But we did it on things like one year, my partner's um, academic conference was in Honolulu, and we went to Honolulu. I remember every, this is, I don't know how long ago it is, almost 20 years ago. I remember everything about that trip. So take the experiences when you have the opportunity. And don't, I guess the other thing I would say is that um, your life may not turn out the way that you want it to, or that you think now you want it to, but don't be too down if things go differently than you thought they would because they could turn out very well even if it's not the plan you had. I guess that's the new advice I would give. That's the old man advice I would give. <laughs> um, but again, no one should live beyond their means. but sometimes, yeah, I do.
0: Because sometimes it's important.
1: I remember one night we we're gonna go find some place to eat that was very cheap. And the place that we stopped first was closed. And then we just got more and more frustrated and ended up eating at the most expensive restaurant in like a three mile <laughs> radius. And it was very expensive. That was a good meal. <laughs> it's a very good meal.
0: And you remember that moment. And
1: I remember that moment. Don't do that, but do take opportunities if they arise. Um, because the opportunities don't come back around
0: that's really good advice
1: but the pair of shoes that you want uh, they'll be around be
0: scuffed up and yeah happy you cool well thank you for nope. doing this podcast oh. I really appreciate you being thank on thank you
1: here. thank you very much yeah it's fun
0: uh, thank you for listening to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture with Tyler Howard Please make sure to share this podcast with your friends so they can dig deep into current research on campus, career possibilities, and the lives and stories of people after college, including their mistakes, misconceptions, and inspiring moments. Again, thanks for tuning in and see you in the next episode.